And you can turn your Bibles to James chapter 2, if you would, if you're sitting here. There are uh, Bibles in front of you and the chair backs in front of you if you don't have one or you forgot it this morning um, and you'd like to grab one. If you don't have a Bible, um, it's, you're welcome to take it. It's for you to have. We want you to have it. And ultimately, we want you to see, as we've said, and we, um, we often say this, that uh, everything that we do here at Grace is founded on God's Word and rooted in God's Word. And hopefully this morning, as we look at James chapter 2, you can see uh, that as we look to what James says to us. Hopefully, the things that I say to you are not things that I've added to God's Word, but things that are there and in Scripture. And so James chapter 2 is where we find ourselves this morning. We're going to talk about this morning and look at the theme of partiality. And my goal at the end of it is to help you see through what James says that partiality is a sin like all other sin. It's a serious thing to consider, and all of us at some point or another have been guilty of this and therefore have cause for reflection on this passage this morning. And so I hope that you sit here and don't see what James says and go, well, that's not me. And I hope you also don't sit here and say, oh, well, that's, you know, so-and-so my neighbor beside me that needs to hear this message. This morning, James is starting a section on teaching on practical examples of, of ways to live out your faith. And so as we walk through, uh, Pastor Jeff kind of teed it up for us last week and at the end of chapter one, there's a few things that he's going to talk about and about what true religion looks like. And what does it look like for us as believers uh, to call ourselves Christians and to be mini-Christs? What does it look like for that? If you say you're a Christian, then the things that we're studying over the next few weeks are going to be very practical for you. Because there are things that ought to be true about you and me as we live out our faith. And so James is saying a life that understands the gospel is a life that looks like this, really. And he, and he starts it in chapter 1 and he continues it on in these chapters that follow. The first thing that we're going to look at this morning is that a Christian should not or does not show partiality. And that's going to be one of our main points. How many times have you thought as a sibling that mom and dad favored you or somebody else over you, another sibling. If you're not an only child, you probably, this is universally true, I think. And even if you're an adult, you're like, yeah, my kids do that now, but you can recall a time when you probably did that with your siblings as well, right? Where it was like, maybe you're at the store and mom and dad got so-and-so a bigger gift or a bigger piece of gum than you or a different kind or something that was more desirable, right? And you're like, oh, you guys just like them better, right? Or your youngest sibling, who, like every family that has more than like three siblings or at least three, probably said the youngest sibling, what, never got any discipline, right? Youngest one never gets any discipline. It's the oldest ones that get it all, and then the youngest ones, and we say it's because they've learned from their older siblings, or that's what mom and dad say, but then the, you know, the older siblings are like, no, that you just never, you know, discipline them. You always discipline me, right? Right? Comes out of a, a bias. We always... We think mom and dad were, they favored, and sometimes that may be true. You may have been a difficult child, and mom and dad may have, <laughs> right? Sometimes mom and dad may have said, I'd rather just deal with the other, right? I don't know, maybe not. Partiality is hard to avoid, and as parents, we try to avoid having favorites, right? It's, it's easy to favor our kids over somebody else's kids, maybe, and we maybe do that, but when it's your own kids... It can be challenging at times, 
where that really gets tested, right? Where you don't want to be, you don't want to have a favorite child. Maybe it's like situational. Uh, like for us in our home, there are things that I know that I don't want to ask certain children, and they're young, but I don't want to ask certain children to do of my boys because I know if I ask them to do that, it's just going to end in like, you know, an argument or something like that, right? Then you know it's not going to get done the way you want, so you go to the other child that you know is going to be obedient, and you ask them to do it. Anybody ever done that? <laughs> Bad parenting technique because it's just saying I don't want to deal with the issue, but we do it sometimes, right? Because we know what's going to happen. We know the desired response of going to the child that's going to obey. So partiality, favoritism is difficult to avoid. We have favorites of all kinds. Some of us have favorite kind of music, right? And we will say, how could you ever like country music? How could you ever like country music, right? Country. And then then those of you that like country, like that pop stuff, what is that, right? or that gospel music, or whatever it is that you don't like. We all have our favorites when it comes to music. We all have our favorites when it comes to sports teams, right? And some of us get a lot of hate for the teams we like, like the Dallas Cowboys. I don't understand why. See, I just don't get it. Now, sometimes the reasons that we have our favorites is for shallow reasons, right? Like, oh, this player, so-and-so. Like, I don't like Tom Brady, and therefore the Bucs. I don't like the Bucs. Because Tom Brady's on the box, and when he was on the Patriots, I didn't like the Patriots because of that player. Or you have a, a sibling or a friend or an enemy, and you're like, yeah, that team sucks. And it's just because you don't like the person that likes that team, right? You have shallow reasons. Let's be honest. Maybe it's just the color. Maybe it's just the logo of a team, right? A simple logo that you like. We all have favorites, and we all have all kinds of favorites. And so... When you come to a passage like this in James, when everything in the world is about partiality and favorites and, and you do what you'd like to do and you cheer for who you'd like to cheer for and you, you, know, you analyze it and you look at it and you choose what's best for you, it becomes really hard to, and difficult to read this passage and then to relate yourself to it because you're so used to it. You're so used to partiality and favoritism and, and being able to choose based on what you think is the right criteria as you become the judge of some of those things. And that's not wrong to have a favorite music and to have a favorite sports team. Maybe to have a favorite child it would be, but we'll leave that one. So when everything in the world is against it or when everything else in the world preaches it, how do we hear what James has to say this morning? And James is going to argue that partiality is sin, specifically when you direct partiality towards other people, whether believers or unbelievers, specifically then. And so the truth is that the way that we behave towards other people indicates what we really believe about God. All right? The way that you behave towards other people really shows you and those around you what you truly believe about God. 1 John 4 says this, If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Sorry, who loves a brother who he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You cannot separate human relationships from divine fellowship, from fellowship with God. You cannot separate the two. John, 1 John says they're tied together. So let's read James chapter 2. We'll read the whole uh, of our section, which is the 13 verses in the beginning of chapter 2, and we'll see what James has for us this morning. So if you're there in, the, in your Bibles, follow along, 
And so see what James has for us. He says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, he comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the man. Are not the rich the ones among you who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing we're going to see this morning in verse 2 and 4, I want to define partiality for us before we look at the opening verse. Partiality defined. James is clarifying for us with a story what partiality is, or at least in part what partiality is. And what does he say? He, says, he tells a story of a rich man who comes into an assembly, and we don't know whether this was a church gathering, whether these were believers or unbelievers, whether this was just people gathering together to uh, resolve a dispute amongst them. It doesn't really say. But James says, somebody comes into your assembly, and he's rich. And you look at him, and then somebody comes in that's poor, and you make a judgment by looking at that person that they deserve to have a better seat than the person that walks in. And what James is saying is you're really making, you're, you're looking at the external person and what you're doing is making a judgment that they deserve more honor and you're honoring them and you're allowing them to sit at the good spot, basically, this is, which is not the front row apparently because those are usually the empty rows. So maybe it's the back seat in the Baptist church. And you're giving them the, the good seat and then you're putting the guy who comes in shabby clothes and you're, you're putting him either at your feet, which is not the footstool, which is not a spot that you want to be, or you know maybe it's in the front row for us Baptists. Favoritism. It literally means to receive a face, right? To show preference to someone based solely on physical appearance. That's favoritism. To respect someone purely based on external factors. And what kind of external factors do we use in the world today to judge those that are around us? All kinds of things, right? Maybe it's the car that, you, that somebody drives. Maybe it's the friends that they have or the places that they go on vacation. These are all things that we use to judge people based on external things. Maybe it's the leisurely activities that they enjoy, like those that like golf or don't like golf or whatever it is, sports. Maybe it is racial differences or maybe it's social status. There's all kinds of things that we use to judge the world. 
But maybe even more practically, it's personalities, right? Dull personalities, people that complain, arrogant people, annoying people, dishonest people. Maybe it's their mind, you know, uneducated, or maybe it's intellectual, people with a PhD, or maybe it's the body, it's people that are out of shape, or people that are physically fit, right? We make external judgments all the time on people. And clearly what James has in mind, he's looking at worldly wealth, and he's talking about rich and poor. He doesn't exclude, though, these, all these other options. And when we read this, and we read partiality, what we're not saying, what James is not saying is strictly, for those of you that look at the rich people and want to be around the rich people, those are the ones that need to hear this message. He's talking about all forms of partiality, all forms of favoritism. The ways that you look at people externally and you make judgments on them based on, I don't want to be maybe around that person or, or whatever it is. Or they're not worthy of so-and-so or such-and-such. We're prone to judge people based on their past, right? Not their future. You imagine how hard it was for those who are hearing Paul's message to believe him after he was killing Christians and then he comes along and God saves him. And, you can, and we know when we read Acts how hard it was for them to believe that this is Paul, the guy that was killing us, and now I'm supposed to listen to him and follow him and follow the gospel that he's preaching. It's because we look at the person's past, not their future. So we're prone to judge by outer appearance, not the inner heart. We don't sit beside certain people in church because they're not our kind of people, Right? Or maybe you get asked to serve in a certain ministry in the church and you're like, oh wait, who directs that or who is in that? And you're like, uh, don't know about that, right? Or can you imagine if you were to say to somebody, I mean, we're not going to, maybe you went out for coffee with somebody and maybe, maybe it's somebody who is socially not a lot of people want to associate with. And you imagine what your friends would say if you're like, yeah, I went out for coffee with so-and-so. Like, oh, how was that? Ugh. Right? There's, there's people in our lives that are like that, that we treat like that, that we judge, that we don't want to be around, people that we don't want to serve with, people that we don't want to associate with because, like, what are people going to think if I associate with those people or do those things? It's silly and it's shallow, and James is going to show us that. The Jewish people, they coveted recognition and honor and praise and respect. And we do the same things today. We covet those things. And what James is saying in these verses in 2 and 4 is you've made distinctions. You've been the one to play God. You're the one to make the judgments. You're the one to, to, to decide how these people ought to be judged. And what he says about that in verse 4 is that is evil and that is wicked for you to look at somebody like that and to judge them based on outer appearance and on external things. It's evil and wicked. And some of us, we do it so easily. And James is saying, this ought not to be so among you who are of the faith. And what does he say in verse 1? My brothers. Well, he says it twice, my brothers. James is not just like trying to lay down the iron fist on these people when he says these things. He says, my brothers, two times. He's saying, I, he recognizes them he loves them, my brothers. He's pleading with them to hear what he has to say. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
Second thing we see in verse 1, partiality is incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ, with true saving faith. Partiality is incompatible. If you call yourself a Christian, these two things do not go together like water and oil. Faith and partiality do not mix. You cannot have true saving faith and be a person who consistently and unrepentantly shows partiality to those around you. People call themselves Christians all the time. And James is going to continue on in this vein of thinking as we get into faith without works in the end of chapter 2. But if you're really saved, your life needs to be changed. And it's different because of Jesus Christ and what He's done. Your life will be changed. So why are they incompatible in verse 1? As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, look at the glorious risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and look at what He did And these two things don't go together. Christ never showed partiality. Look what he came to do. Right? He became poor for our sake so we may be made rich. And so, honestly, if you're living a life of partiality this morning towards others, you show that you don't understand the gospel. You show that you don't understand what it means to be saved by the gospel that you proclaim to be saved by, if you show partiality. That's a hard thing to swallow. But it doesn't mean, what I'm not saying this morning, and if, you hear, if you're hearing this, you're hearing it wrong, if you f- hear that I'm saying you need to be perfect in this area and show no partiality ever, that's impossible. But if it's something that's not really that big of a deal and you are happy to continue in it, then James has a word for you this morning. He's not calling for perfection. But maybe you're wrestling with partiality. The third thing we see is that partiality mocks God's character in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? God is impartial. That's who He is. An illustration for you to understand this. If you ever played sports in elementary school or high school or even just with the neighborhood friends, you know how you typically choose sports teams when you're playing sports is let's get two captains, right? Who's ever done that? Who has ever been a captain before? Yeah, that's that's like high stat. So these are all the athletes out here. No, I've, I've been on both ends of it where you get to be the captain and where also you're like the last guy picked. So that's part of the illustration. But you know how we pick teams, right? We say, okay, you're captain. And then what we do is line up everybody. The two captains get a look down the line. And what are they? They're automatically looking at what? All the guys that are good at the sport or the gals that are good. And those are all the ones that go first, right? Like depending on the sport you're playing, you might get picked first. If it's ice hockey, I'll always pick last right? Because I can't do that. Not good at it. But if it's another sport like baseball, maybe I might get picked like, you know, near the top, right? And we do this all the time when it comes to picking teams. And what that illustration shows us compared to the gospel is that it's very, very anti-gospel. That's not how God, can you imagine if that's how God chose you and me, right? If he lined us up, right? And he said, uh, a bit funny looking, 
right? He's like, oh, this guy's really faithful. Devo's every day, right? And, and just going down the line, and he picks apart all our weaknesses, and he chooses all the strong people and says, these are my team, right? He doesn't do that. He didn't do that with the disciples. You look at who they were, the different backgrounds and lives that they brought. That's not how God chose, right? We're going to read a verse in a moment to illustrate that. But that way of choosing is anti-gospel. That's not how God operates. It's not how he chooses his children. Deuteronomy 7 says this. This is how God chooses his children. Chapter 7, verse 6. For you are people. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. So it's a special honor. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord had set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You notice how God chose his people. Not because they were great in number, not because they were great in stature, because he made a promise and he loves them. And he was going to honor that. It wasn't about how good they were. It never is about how good you are. God's choosing of Israel was not prompted by how miserable they were in Egypt. It was because of the faithfulness of his love and the desire to uh, be faithful to Israel and to, to live in his character. So God shows no partiality in giving eternal life to all, even to those who get saved on their deathbed right? God may save people and they're saved for 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And God may save somebody who's saved for five minutes before they die and go to be in his presence. God is impartial in who he saves. Partiality goes then against what God has chosen to do in the world. God's choice, as according to James, is to choose those in the world that are poor, and that's a reflection of his character. There's two kinds of poor when we think of this word. The first one being what we read in Matthew, the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Those who are meek and humble and who recognize their, their dependence on God, their total need for God. There's that. But then there's also being physically poor. In Luke, he says, blessed are the poor. And James is talking about the second kind of poor in, this, in these verses. Somebody who is physically poor who has nothing in this world, who's completely dependent on God for everything physically because they don't have the means of which to have that. And we sometimes get this backwards, right? Because we think that riches and having stuff is what makes life good. We want to be wealthy and there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. God blesses people. But we act as if that's what really matters when it doesn't. What does God do with the poor in verse 5? He's chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. You see the contrast there? Poor in this world to be rich in faith and in life eternal. God gives them riches that actually matter, which is eternal life with Him. The kingdom of God. You see the contrast. He's saying, how could you want it any other way? How could you want something other than that? Why do you strive to be known and loved and to be rich in this world, to benefit from them when what they have ultimately to offer you is something that's not going to last? Riches that are not eternal. Things that are not truly riches. 
Because that's what's going on in verse 2 to 4 when he, when he speaks of them looking to the rich people and honoring them. What they're really doing is what they're, they're really like the association, right? Like, oh, if I go, you know, go and give this person a good seat, what are, the, what are the good things that might come from that, from honoring that person? Or maybe it's just social status, and that's it, and that's all it is. And imagine you know, how cool it is that I get to be named among this person that came into our assembly, right? As if that really matters, or as if the riches that you have from that really matter. Inheritance in God's kingdom is totally based on his sovereign election and his choice. God is impartial. And he chooses based on his wisdom, not worldly wisdom. Let me read 1 Corinthians for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For considering your, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that why? This is the most important part of this verse. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's why. God operates on a totally different playing field than we do. God judges the heart and he looks at the inner man. He doesn't look at the external appearance or external factors. And when we choose to show partiality towards other people, especially those in the faith, what we're doing is we're mocking God's character. The character of God that we proclaim to follow. Fourth thing we see in verse 6. <clears throat> partiality dishonors the poor. This is what's going on. He says to them, this is what's going on amongst those that he is speaking to. You treat people as if they don't belong. You treat them as if God sees them differently. Have we ever done that before? God honors every single son and daughter who believes in him. When you come to church, it's not a club where we huddle together and do ministry and life together based on external things that we all like, like the Dallas Cowboys or the Toronto Maple Leafs or the way that we dress, or so and so. We don't get to, we're not a social club here. We're a family. We're not gathered around social issues and status. We're gathered around Christ. And in Christ, everybody gets fair treatment. Everybody gets equal treatment. There's a saying that you know, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? And what the world tells us today, or what we hear, the message that we hear about inclusion and all these things, is that the world does a really good job of this, of loving everybody and including everybody. Look how inclusive we are with all the things that we support. We love everybody. When in reality, we know that they don't, because if you don't wholeheartedly agree, then you're not treated as an equal. So the only place you can go to find true acceptance and love and equal and fair treatment should be the church. It should be right here where we follow God's character, where we live out God's character. That's where it should be. That's where equal treatment should be. And sometimes that's not true of us. More often than we like to admit that's not true of us as a church maybe. But that's where people should be able to go to see lives transformed by Christ living out and acting out God's character. 
A church, the church should be a place where everybody is seen the way that God sees them. Everybody's treated the way that God treats them. So if they're a believer in Christ, then Christ lives in them. And if they're not, then Christ died for them. And either way, we receive and accept and, and love them. And this doesn't mean that we can't respect people in positions. I'm not advocating for that. For example, we, um, we honor and allow and serve the seniors by putting them in the front few rows where they, want, where they sit. And if we imagine if, you know, the premier of the province came in here, we would respect that man for the office that he holds. It's not that we don't respect them. We still do. But we don't show partiality towards brothers and sisters and those around us. And so what he's really combating is the desire to be named among them and to be treated differently because of that. He says, stop doing that. Stop trying to be like them. Stop trying to be liked by them, by honoring them and giving them the best seat, by showing partiality as if something can be gained by doing that. Christian, it's not about being popular. It's not about being liked by the world around you. The world is going in the completely opposite direction that you are if you love Jesus and if you love God. And what does Jesus say in John 15? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So stop trying to be loved by it. Stop trying to seek the social status that comes from being a part of the world and the things of the world. Whether it's gaining riches or social status, stop. Stop running from being marginalized for following Christ. That's the whole point. Christ was marginalized. Because we're going in two opposite directions. So partiality dishonors the poor. The fifth thing, partiality is worldly. It's senseless to bestow honor on the rich for three reasons, he says. First one, they oppress you. They drag you into court. They use their influence to hurt you. Extra taxes, whatever it is. And they slander Jesus Christ, the name that called you and that you submit to. They slander, they mock, and they belittle the God that you follow. Why do you want to be like the world? It's senseless. It's foolish. It's pointless. They're not specially chosen by God. But God doesn't also exclusively call the poor. You think of Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew, the tax collector. Zacchaeus, the tax collector. God chooses those that are rich in this world for his purposes. But to pine up to those who have riches and social status for the sake of you having that as well is pointless. Why do you want it so bad? You may be tempted to think at this point partiality is a small, trivial thing. You may think, well, I'm not really living my life to please the rich and to get stuff from those that have wealth or even from those who have social status. But partiality is not just viewed in terms of poor and rich. Partiality is showing honor and favor and respect, as we've said, to those on, to, based on external things like possessions or education, personalities, friends, whatever it is. And so as James goes on, it's as if he's thinking, okay, you guys think this isn't a big deal, right? But the little things that we struggle with, they reveal our hearts. 
And what partiality reveals, as we've said, is that you truly don't understand the gospel. And so let's see what James says to those who might be tempted to think, is this really that big of a deal? Partiality is a violation not only of God's character and, and how it mocks God's character, but it's also a violation of God's law. What is the royal law in verse 8? He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. The royal law is God's law, the law of God. The law that leads to God and it belongs to God. The law that he's spoken to us in his word. And the law tells us how to live. And Jesus says, love fulfills the law. One of the two greatest commandments, Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love fulfills everything that God has written down for us. James says in verse 9, partiality is sin. And what does he say as he follows? If you've broken any part of the law, you're guilty of it all. Right? The unregenerate heart will say, well, I haven't murdered and I haven't committed adultery. Maybe I've been partial, but I haven't done those things. And what James says is partiality makes you guilty of the law, the whole thing. Right? What is he screaming at these people? You're not morally superior to anybody. Right? You think that you are because you don't do the bad things, but you're not morally superior to anybody. If you've broken one element of it, you've broken it all. Why is that? Because the same God who says, do not murder and do not commit adultery, is the same God who said, love your neighbor as yourself. God's law is a revelation of his character and all that he is. Every law is in some way tied to God's character. And sin is missing the mark and not living up to God's character. So little sins do not exist. Everything, every sin, makes you guilty of God's law. If you got to choose what in God's word you obey, then you would be God, right? You'd get to play God. And James is saying obedience to God is all or nothing. You either obey it all or you disobey one of them, and in that case, you disobey it all. So obedience to God is all or nothing. And this doesn't mean that you don't struggle in your obedience. There's this thing called progressive sanctification that we all wrestle with as the Spirit works in us and, and reveals to us what God's Word says. The law can be compared like this, like a piece of glass. Say you take a rock off a pile of rocks, that pile of rocks is probably not going to crumble. You take a rock off and you throw it at a mirror, that mirror is going to shatter, right? And make it completely useless. The same with God's law. If you disobey in one area, the entire system fails, leading to spiritual death. And praise be to God for the gospel. This is why the gospel in Christ and the glorious Christ in verse 1 is so important. Because you're never going to live completely up to the law, to God's standard. Jesus did that for you. You and I continually miss the mark of God's standard every day. And Jesus came and lived a perfect life on your behalf and he died in your place because you're guilty before the law and I'm guilty. Even if you've broken just one of God's commands. The wages of sin is death. And if you place your faith in Christ, you're saved from God's wrath because Jesus took it on the cross. Praise God for the gospel. And what does he say in verse 12 as he continues on? We're going to come back to this 
in, uh, in the end of chapter 2, or sorry, you've already visited this, I should say, uh, in chapter 1, when he said, be doers of the word, not just hearers, if you remember that in James 1. He says, do the word in verse 12. Do the word. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Validate the reality of your religion and your faith by doing what God's word says. Jesus doesn't just suggest that you love your neighbors. He commands it. And he demands it. And who is your neighbor, according to Jesus? In the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, what does Jesus say? Your neighbor is that person around you that needs your help. Not your neighbor based on location, but based on the need around you. That's your neighbor by opportunity, not geography. And so there's many opportunities around you. If you look at the back of your bulletins, you'll see six opportunities that you have to serve needy ministries in Charlottetown. And there's more than just those six. But we don't ask or demand or command that you go out and support them all. And we don't judge you for supporting one of the six or two of the six. There's freedom in this, in obeying the loving of your neighbor. As you see what the needs are in front of you, and as God lays on your heart a burden for certain things, there's freedom to, to support and love and care for those around you. But how are you loving your neighbor? How are you filling needs around you? God calls each of us to look to the poor and to love them and to take care of them. And it's funny, love your neighbor like yourself. Imagine when you get up in the morning and you look at the mirror, I would never get up in the morning and look at the mirror with my bed head and come to church on Sunday, ever. Never do it. If I do it, it's in a dream. And it's a nightmare, not a dream. And that happens. And you've probably had those before too, right? That's the only time. Any other time I see myself in the mirror, I'm going to make sure I look presentable before I leave. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. Treat your neighbor the way that you treat yourself. If you saw yourself down and hurting and in need, you'd help yourself. Help your neighbor in the same way. Christian love does not mean that you're intimate friends with everybody, but it does mean that you treat everybody the way that God treats you. And when you do that, you gain a better appreciation for those people that you originally didn't want to be around. Why? Because the motive is the glory of God, not your comfort. It's not about your emotions and how you feel and the social status that comes with loving your neighbor. It's not about that. It's about glorifying God. So be sure, James says, that the things that you say and do line up with the law of liberty. The law of liberty. Just want to really quickly touch on the law of liberty briefly. Because people today argue that in Christianity, when you follow Christianity, it's a bunch of rules, right? And it restricts you from being able to do what you want to do. Anyone ever heard that argument before, right? Rule-based religion. I don't get to have any fun. You got to go to church on Sunday, wake up early on your second day off of the weekend, all these things, right? That it's just horrible what you have to do as a Christian. How does James describe the law? He says the law of liberty. James says the law following God brings freedom. There's a freedom that enslaves people. The freedom to do whatever you want enslaves you. The freedom to go and do any drug you want will enslave you because there's a thing called addiction. Right? Drug addiction. Sex addiction leads to a life of lust and shallow relationships. Drug addiction has its own 
negative impacts. The law following God brings freedom. The law gets us ready for liberty. If you have a child, you know kind of, and you can understand even maybe more particular what this is like. My children are not ready to take on the world with all the decisions and the burdens of the world. They can't handle the demands of the world right now at five. Someday, Lord willing, hopefully they they can. But what they need right now is outward discipline that's going to produce in them an inward discipline so that one day they're free from following all these laws, which is what it apparently is like when you're a parent, to actually just it being a part of who you are. And some would call that indoctrination maybe, that way of life, as an argument, but that's a shallow argument. Liberty doesn't mean license to do whatever you want. Liberty is the freedom to be all that God has created you to be. And that is only found in God's word and in God's law. As you look to the creator God who created you and knows what is best for you, the only way to be free in all of that is to follow him and what he's revealed to us and not to do whatever you want. And so I teach my sons not to hit, not just because they're going to get hit if they keep doing that, but also because I'm trying to produce in them this understanding that this is not how you live. This is not going to produce the greatest flourishing for you as an adult if you continue on hitting everybody that doesn't give you what you want. The law brings freedom. And the law frees us from judgment, bondage, punishment, and from the curse of death and hell. And finally, we see partiality is not mercy in verse 13. For judgment is without mercy of the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you don't care about obedience in your life, then you have to ask yourself, do I understand the gospel? Am I really a Christian? If there's no fruit and no desire to honor and obey God, then stop calling yourself a Christian. If you can hear the word and not do anything about it, what's going on? We're not talking about perfection, but why is this important? Because judgment is coming. The person who shows no mercy shows that he doesn't understand mercy, and therefore he's in need of mercy when judgment comes, and it won't be there for him. Matthew 7, judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Or 2 Corinthians 5, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. What we're not saying is we're not saying if you show mercy now, well then God's going to show you mercy. It's not like you can earn God's mercy by showing mercy. But when you don't show mercy, it shows that you don't understand the mercy of God on your behalf as found in the gospel. And there's coming a day when you and I are going to have to give an account for all our attitudes and our actions and our favoritism and our partiality towards other people. There's coming a day. And the same measure that we use is the measure that's going to be used against us. Faith without mercy towards others is not genuine faith. Something's broken in your understanding of the gospel. You may struggle with despising certain people or showing partiality towards certain people, 
But remember the mercy that God has shown you. And in that remembering of that mercy, extend that mercy to others. And the glorious thing is that when we fail, the final word is God's grace. Right? Praise God that He is an impartial God. That He's not partial towards holiness and requires it so that we are all guilty and under His condemnation and His wrath. But He sent His Son, right? His own Son on our behalf. He showed us mercy. Let's pray. God, we thank You this morning. We thank You for this time to reflect on Your Word and we thank You for this book of James. We pray, God, that Your Word, as we read it, would speak to our hearts, God. As we try and seek to understand it, God, we ask that Your Word would reveal in our lives the ways that we need to apply it and understand it. God, give us eyes to see how your word is applicable for us, God. We know that the struggle of partiality is something that we all have seen or been a part of or had in our lives, God. We recognize that as we look and reflect on the gospel and the mercy that's found in the gospel and in your law, that this amazing Christ who came for us such a beautiful picture of your love for us, God, and for your, of your mercy. And God, it ought to change our hearts. It ought to change the way that we live. It ought to change the way that we see people around us, people that we look at and we judge externally based on whatever it is, education, personality, wealth, social status, God, all of these things. We fail and make judgments, God, and we think that it's honorable and good for us to associate with certain people and certain ways of life and not others, God, and we recognize that that does not show the gospel. And God, we want our lives to show the gospel because we say that it's true of our lives, that you've died on the cross for us and shown us mercy. And God, if that is true, help us to understand mercy and to show it. We pray these things in your holy name, God. Amen.